suppose we'll hear stories about addiction. We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And this season, season three of LTGW, is dedicated solely to artists who are in recovery. And my co-host is Mariana Casagranda, herself a recovering addict and an artist. And I love co-hosting this season with you, Mariana. So... Welcome to today's podcast, where we are reflecting on a recent interview with David Jacobson, who is a glass blower. So, and I just want to tell people that Mariana was the one that thought of having David on our podcast. So I'm delighted that you put me in touch with him. My pleasure. And hello to everybody. And thank you so much for attending yet another exciting podcast with myself and Nancy. Um, so glad that um, David got on board and I'm excited to be here. And uh, yeah, let's get rocking. All right. So uh, one of the things that Mariana and I have both responded to in David's interview was that he said at age 71, he's in the prime of his life. And I remember saying to David during the interview process that, you know, if only the audience could see us rather than those who are listening only, um, because I think David at 71 and myself at 67, that we look good too. You know, we're not just experiencing that life can be this good. We take excellent care of ourselves. Um, he was saying that he's, you know, active and athletic. And I played pickleball today, as I do most days of the week. And I love to dance and I'm active and I'm healthy. So it's not just that I eat well and I don't abuse my body with substances. I also get adequate sleep. And maybe that's one area I could even do better. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Mariana? I know that you consider yourself to be in the prime of life. I don't remember your current age. Yeah, I'm uh, 64. Uh, and I don't, you know, I... It's funny, when I hit my 40s, I started, I, I felt at home finally. Like finally, the inside and the outside made sense. And I had always been attracted to older people and, and their stories and their experiences far more than my own peers. So there was this element uh, connected to me about aging that was not um, as negative as much of this culture has created. And so when David was mentioning that at the age of 71, he feels like in the prime of his life and he's got a lot of creative juices flowing and ideas and things he wants to pursue, I thought to myself, there's the duality of the blessing between not only having recovery, which it gives us a number of both tools and certainly the desire 
to be consistent with healthy practices in our body so that we can sustain the spiritual life. But as artists, with that, as we're dancing with all of the recovery, if you will, we also then have the glory of this endless curiosity, this endless need to create and make with our hands and our heart involved. And what an amazing job that is for the rest of our lives. I thought I may die with a messy studio, but I'm not going to die of boredom. You know, that is really clear to me. I will be, you know, hopefully in the process of making something, whatever the something is. But to have that is a real gem. And it's not I, I've heard other people in recovery speak about that who are not necessarily artists, but who have found something that sings to them. And so that is um, that was such a key element of what he said early on in your interview. And I just thought of um, the obvious gratitude behind that statement and deep appreciation for what got restored. Well, and I think of that like so often, especially earlier in my recovery, I thought this should be titled discovery rather than recovery, because I don't remember, you know, feeling engaged. And in fact, I thought that when I put alcohol down, which was the first substance for me to really put down, and I simultaneously stopped smoking pot, and I was 24 years old, and I stopped drawing for at least a year, I almost were I worried at that time that maybe the muse, you know, because I was a Mm -hmm a preteen that sat with the drawing pad on my knees for hours, like I'd forget to eat, I'd forget to go pee, you know, I would just like be absorbed in what I was drawing with at that time, a rapidograph, these black Mm -hmm. images of gargoyles in the sky, they were all fantasy illustrations. And um, I really loved it. And I lost that capacity when I first put the substances down. It's like, Mm -hmm that creativity almost dried up. And I was really afraid that it wouldn't come back. And it did. And I felt and I feel now at five years ago, I really found that I I felt like I found my creative voice. And it was putting the same fantasy illustration into illustrating with thread. I'd become a fiber artist and I love the color of Mm -hmm fiber arts. And I've now started, I just completed a series of seven quilts where I illustrate the images in black and white and then applique them onto these very colorful art quilts made mostly with batiks. And so it's the contrast that's really uh, speaks to me. Anyway, it's just to wait all those years to find this sense of really having a specific way of expressing myself creatively mm-hmm. that feels like my mm-hmm. unique voice. And I remember that David said it was seven years into his sobriety that he returned to glass mm-hmm. that had called to him for you know, a lot longer than even seven years. It was a, and, and he also said that he was very successful as a cartoonist, you know, one of few people Mm -hmm. in the country that was being paid as a columnist with his own cartoon Mm -hmm. column um, Mm -hmm. for many years. And yet it was that internal drive that was calling him back to glass. Yeah. What was key to me through the 
metaphysical lens, if you will, and also through the lens of recovery and as an artist. When he was talking about that job, how he spoke about it was, you know, he had 17, 18 years as a cartoonist. He loved what he did. He had all the benefits. He was in New York. He had all the external stuff going on. And yet, and then there was this pause. And I thought, and there you have it. Because the longing in the soul for what he really wanted, he got a glimpse of, but he didn't have the confidence or the ability to follow that. Then that got um, covered in the haze of alcoholism and everything else he was doing because he was jumping around between colleges and all sorts of things. And there was no capacity to do that kind of work because glasswork is heavy work. It's very difficult work. And you have to have persistence to be able to carry it through all the stages in order for it to actually be made. It's not a one and done. It's not a very quick process. Um, so there was a part of him that must have recognized that at a deep level because he didn't he didn't you know play with it when he was uh, in his early years he waited and so I thought it was really powerful seven years in you know at the, at the age of seven from the soul's beginning to age seven at seven we are given a shift in our consciousness to begin to be really keenly aware of the things in our environment, the uh, maturing of uh, a child's nature, if you will, and the beginning of understanding things like power and all the things in the life, you know, and all of the, the feeling states and everything around us. So at that, so it's interesting that it took seven years in recovery before he once again allowed that door to open and that piece to come up and stay up. Because I think in many ways there was a repression of it. And, and it was, you know, I think it had to wait because I don't think it, to me, it feels like the respect that he had, even if it was just a feeling or a glimpse or, an, uh, you know, whatever he had at the moment when he first played with glass, I think there was some part of him that knew he couldn't, that this was serious. It was too scary to touch at first, you know, and it's very similar to how I felt about recovery, too, it was like, ooh, I, I what am I getting myself into here? And listening to people who were so far sober far more than me, looking at their lives and going, wow, like, how does that happen? Just that. And there was, you know, there was a mystery there. So how interesting seven years it took. You just reminded me of another mystery that came mm -hmm. out in our interview, which was how he ran into the mm -hmm. person he knew from college when he went to see a demonstration in Brooklyn of glass. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the man said, are you still doing glass? David said, no, I'm not. And he said, you are now. I'm about to right. teach a course and you're going to be in it. I mm -hmm. love the confidence of that person, mm -hmm. too, you know? mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and just recognizing that in David's soul that this is yeah. this important. And yeah, I, I have had many similar feelings like that in my life, that it does not have anything to do with the logic or rationale of things. It is everything to do with the call of the soul. And you know it. It's a visceral knowing. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's like, OK, I, I got to do this. Doesn't matter what else is going on. Everything shifts in that moment. And, you know, to be seven years sober, which is still relatively youngish, you know, in, in recovery, I, I'd have to say, I mean, looking back at my own cycle, he had enough in him to, to go for it. He had enough trust. And I think the key that I heard underneath all that was there was enough intuitive relationship with the higher power to allow receptivity and to allow for an opening. That is a very big crossroads. Not many people say yes to that. And that was the other thing. 
Yeah. And, and that was also in his interview, he said, who am I to say no? Right. Exactly. Which was also someone came to him and said, well, why not you, David? You know, like in terms of mm-hmm. making a living as an artist, which mm-hmm. is something that I, I don't know if, you know, in addition to the interview, we put the recording back on and did a little... <laughs> Um, just about five minutes, I think, about art and business, Mm -hmm. because David was acknowledging that there's a lot to it. Not only is glass expensive, but to create the infrastructure of a glass studio and to keep up with the, you know, what it costs to maintain a glass studio and to teach and, you know, that he now has a bookkeeper and an accountant and so. It's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And I think if it isn't, you know, if you don't have, if you're, if you were an addict and you, and you're in recovery and you've maintained recovery for a while, you understand a bit more about what commitment really means, what persistence can really be like and what, um, you know, having to maintain uh, a process for a long enough period to see it to its ending. And so those pieces, like having to get an accountant and then having to find somebody to do this piece, and then how do you get this big equipment into a building and who do you need to call? It's a lot of research. It's a lot of calling, a lot of tasks. And um, it's easy to you know, fall off the plate, so to speak, in any of those um, and feel, you know, overwhelmed. And for us, when we feel overwhelmed, we call each other for support, for humor, and for the capacity to go, can I just jump for 10 minutes? Because I'm going crazy here. And then we don't, we don't need to carry it any further, right? He talked a lot about support from people in program. And he, you know, amongst all of us, we we need to keep that, those links strong to get us through things that maybe for other people might not be that big of a deal. But for us is very different, you know? And so um, this is, you know, I, I think what he exemplified, like many of the artists we talked to, is an artist in recovery is an artist in recovery with a community. They're not all isolated on their own. The image that just came to me <laughs> mm-hmm. when you said they're not all isolated on their own was one that I had a therapist and I had been talking about how when I was active in my addiction to food, which took me, you know, a long time in recovery from alcohol and pot to put down the excessive addictive eating. And before being able to do that successfully, I was seeing this therapist and I was explaining that I would draw and then feel like I had to eat. And he turned it around and he said, next time you have a craving to eat or a desire to binge, I want you to draw. And I bought a blank journal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is is so typical of the addictive personality too. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to get a brand new journal. Oh, of course. One of those black leather ones (laughs) with all the white inside. And, and I turned to the first page wanting to eat, I drew this picture in what I called my pictorial journal. Mind you, that was the only entry I ever made in that journal. (laughs) And I drew a picture of a long banquet table, like in a castle with a princess on one end. And then all these birthday cakes lit down the table. And the caption read, the princess invited 13 little friends to her birthday party. They all said they couldn't come and they sent cake. Oh. Right. 
they couldn't come but they sent cake mm. and i was like oh mm. you know in my isolation food was there for me yeah 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 exactly exactly and what right. it means, David used this term that I love, which was spiraling up, that in depression, in anxiety, in active addiction, we are in a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to actually spiral upward in recovery? Well, when I heard him say that, I immediately connected to the Kabbalah, because in the Kabbalah, the relationship between two souls, if they're meant to work together, is, is meant to spiral up energetically. Because between the two souls, between and what they describe as the sacred marriage, if you will, the anima and the animas, okay, male and the female, is to is to understand that the the, the bringing together of those parts is going to be the sum of the greater than each of those alone. And so there's a spiraling up that happens between my soul, and I believe David's, with the higher power that increases and accelerates our evolution, our, our intention to grow, and our possibilities in terms of how and what we put out into the world. And the spiraling down, which is the pulling down, the ease of being brought down, it's so much heralded by self-pity, isolation, desperation, uh, you know, darkness. It's also part of the pull. You know, going down a flight of stairs is a heck of a lot easier than going up. And that's the difference because the spiraling up requires effort and concentrated energy that's used in a formidable way to create something as opposed to running down a flight of stairs and just keep going down because it's all, you know, the gravity pulls. And to go against that force and to really go up is, you know, something that requires effort. And so not everyone, you know, wants to sign up for that one either. But I think in recovery, it's made very clear that you need to make effort to bring about this transformative change. And the thing that we have changed is everything, not just the, the whatever brought us into the door. It's every part of us. So we just don't know that at the beginning. But there's a part of us that really, truly does. You know, I, I look back and I think there was something in me that got my ass to the door, you know, to be able to say, okay, I surrender. So yeah, that spiraling up is a very powerful force. And it's part of his, I think it's part of our opportunity to feel like we're in the prime of our lives because we are. We're learning to manage energy and our uh, creativity and our possibility in concert with the higher power, not alone anymore. And so the we is far more powerful than the me any day. I love that too. I was just reflecting on the how the first step in 12-step programs based on Alcoholics Anonymous mm. is worded. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't say, I admit I'm powerless over alcohol. It's in mm -hmm. the third person, plural past tense. Mm -hmm. You know, we admitted we mm -hmm. were powerless right. over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I, right. I really feel like a lot of people miss that, mostly looking in from the outside about 12-step mm -hmm. programs. They think it's, mm -hmm. and it really is counterculture, especially mm -hmm. to think of yourself as powerless. Mm -hmm. And I believe that those 12 steps are all about personal empowerment. Mm -hmm. Well, there are authentic power as opposed to conditional societal normative powers. You know, 
wherever you are born, whatever culture or society you're in, you will get conditioned by that environment. And you will have the values and the judgments and the theories or ideas that are inherent to that. It takes a lot to break free of those things. Not an easy task. And it's part of that inside job that was also referred to in this um, talk with David. Yeah, it's an inside job because true power is internal. It's not about power over someone. It's not about power that comes from domineering and, you know, having lots of money and lots of nice clothes and lots of cars and da 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 da. That stuff isn't where it is, but it takes a certain consciousness to understand that and then to live it. There's the difference. And so in recovery, we get to sift through our values and figure out which ones are authentic to us and which ones never were. That takes a lot of courage. You know, it takes a lot of courage. I, I think because he was sober and he, he put these two words together a lot, glass and magic, the magic of glass. And I kept thinking about that. I thought, yes, in, in the, um, metaphysical world the image of the magician is in the card the magician's card in the tarot has an a, a male image of a of a person with a hand up in the air and a hand down towards a table and it symbolizes taking an idea that which would, has no form whatsoever no substance becoming the channel it comes through your body and out of you comes an actual manifestation of that idea, right? But you're the filter. And so literally when you glass blow, you have a tube and you have to breathe into it. And the breath forms that molten glass at the end of that iron rod. It's heavy work. You're sweating. It's a lot of effort. You're giving birth to this thing through this tube. And you don't know what it's going to look like until you keep working and snipping and rolling and putting it back in the oven and da, da, da. all this tempering back and forth of that glass between the hot and the cooling off. And I feel in many ways, that's the relationship we have with the higher power. We're the glass at the end of the tube. And we're in the hands of, you know, this force that knows what it's doing, although we may feel otherwise at times. <laughs> but there you have magic. I, I learned one time how to bead a feather the Native American way. And one thing I loved about this is I asked the teacher if she always beaded in this way, where we sat, we were taught to sit on a red blanket, to get up in this way, and to bless our hands in this way, and, you know, put an odd colored bead when you ended a you know, at, in, before going back to work on it again. And I asked her, I said, do you always bead this Native American way? And she said, no, I most often bead the American TV way. <laughs> Which mm -hmm. I, I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. there was this um, saint blessing she had about your hands as an artist that I really loved. She had us wash our hands in seawater and and dry them off and say, I bless these hands, may they manifest spirit into form. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that there is a magic in producing art that many of the ideas I feel come to me come from somewhere outside of me that's greater than a, a spiritual kind of messaging. And then it's me that creates it on this earthly plane and brings it into form that even the angelic spirits that have given me that they don't have that ability mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to bring right. it into form. So that's a gift that I give almost like you're given the gift of being an artist in whatever way you express your 
artistic talent Mm -hmm. and your gift to spirit is is making the art Mm -hmm. yeah yeah because we have the the bodily form to do it with yeah exactly Exactly. and i love there was one uh spiritual teacher in my life that i I used to come, you know, cross paths with him at these odd times with years in between. And at one time I was very, very sick physically. And I was telling him that it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, I don't know if it's worth, like, I wasn't going to take myself out of the, off the planet, you know, and I just wasn't sure that it was uh, worth continuing on to struggle. And he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, Nancy, everything you experience spiritually, you experience through this body while you're here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. really loved that. I, I, you know, had great appreciation for that. Yeah. Everything you experience spiritually, you're experiencing through the physical body while you're mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it allows us to do that. It really does. And, uh, and then we can transform things. You know, our experiences in the past become very different when we look at them now. Um, and opportunities are, uh, you know, the mysteries of life. You know, it's just great. It really is. That image of this spiritual mm-hmm. teacher putting his hands on my shoulders just brought back a much earlier image in the first few months of sobriety. I asked this woman at a meeting if I had gone to 90 meetings in 90 days. Hmm. And she too put her hands on both my shoulders and said, dear, I remember it very well. She was older, <laughs> probably my age now, you know, Yeah. She, and I'm 24. And she put her hands on my shoulders and she said, dear, mm. have you come to a meeting every day for the last three months? And I said, no. And she said, then you have not done 90 meetings in 90 days. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. You know, I just, they, they talk about it takes five years to, you know, get grounded in recovery or get your, one yeah, of, get, get your marbles back. That's yeah. exactly mm-hmm. what I had a, a yeah. colleague that used to say. It's five years oh, to yeah. get your marbles back. And she would give people yeah. a marble when they graduated from the program I worked for at the hospital. You know? <laughs> Here's your first marble. Oh, my God. How funny. Well, and, you know, we like the tangible. I mean, you know, something to hang on to, right? It's great. Yeah. (laughs) A little little prize, you know. So, Mariana, is there anything Mm -hmm. else looking back over? I I know you took a couple of pages of notes when you listened to David's interview. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else you want to leave our listeners with today as we wrap up? You know, I think... the, the thing that really um, was just beautiful to hear uh, in his um, story was um, this clear longing for the expression of glass and this pre-recognition that this was his language to come. And I think, um, you know, finding our voices, finding our language, finding our rhythms is worth everything in order to claim our space. That's who we are meant to be. And and for those in early recovery and those who are struggling who might be listening to this, I think the message I heard him say, and I would certainly echo it, is don't give up on yourself and don't give up on the possibility that awaits you around the corner because um, the miracle does happen. And when those things drop into place 
and you own all of those things, there is nothing like it. Thank you so much for adding that. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle shows up. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, those of you that are listening today, I hope that if you haven't already subscribed, that you do subscribe to Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. You can do so on my website. It's nancyadair.com. Remember to spell Nancy with an I at the end, nancyadair, A-D-A-I-R.com. And you can subscribe there or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, everywhere where you listen to a podcast, LTGW should be there. And the more subscribers we have, the more we can reach the still sick and suffering addict that's out there. And um, hopefully can continue to expand this community. We do have over 500 followers now on our Facebook group. So I'm delighted to say that and uh, keep the discussion coming there and especially tell us what you want to hear about during um, future episodes of LTGW. And Mariana, do you want to tell people how they can be in touch with you in the future? Sure. Thank you, Nancy. And uh, thank you again for another good episode, I believe, um, in this podcast series. Um, Yes. People can reach me uh, on my website uh, at marianacasagranda.com. My contact info is on there. If you are interested in astrological readings and other services that I may offer there, um, there's a a website information. And please feel free to contact me for more uh, info if you have any questions. And um, again, my pleasure to be here and join Nancy in this podcast. Thank you. Terrific. Until next time. Mm -hmm. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, But mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. 